You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe and producer Paul. We're in downtown Los Angeles right now in a high-rise condo in a very fancy lounge with weird chains on the wall here. I'm not sure what that's about. There, maybe, maybe we can figure that one out. We're here with an old friend of mine, Sean Hernandez. He works at a power utility in Southern California. And we're here to talk about energy forecasting and energy trading, and also a paper of his, which he wrote about geoengineering. So we'll get into the moral hazard in geoengineering as well as energy trading. But where should we start there? Sean, I guess, why don't you say hello? Maybe that's the best place. Hi. Yeah. Um, like Ross said, I work as an economist. Ever since I was an undergrad, just thought economics was really the way to go in terms of social thinking. And yeah, why is that? Why do you think economists? Economists are so arrogant. They think it applies to everything. Something about economists, you know, they like counterintuitive findings. Mm -hmm. And I definitely like counterintuitive findings too. Sometimes they're right and counterintuitive things are true. So they do seem like some of the few willing to accept that reality. Do you feel like you sometimes take the uh, argumentative side or the contrarian side of an argument? This is not necessarily related to our conversation, but I was a national champion in debate Uh saying that we should increase alternative energy incentives by buying aircraft carriers. Really? How does that that work? I think it is relevant. So yeah, talk us Yeah, because it subsidizes the nuclear power business to Mm. buy an aircraft carrier. It has two reactors on board that are powered by weapons-grade fuel. And did you win? You got to the final? won the national championship, yeah. That's funny. That actually... Hattie was talking about that oh, really? in one of our previous podcasts. Oh, Ross, you weren't paying attention, I uh, guess. But listen again. We'll refresh us uh, on that one. Well, so when you are using nuclear energy to power a aircraft carrier, you have all this excess and incredibly cheap energy. Oh, that's right. And you could theoretically and quite possibly be removing carbon dioxide directly aboard that aircraft carrier and producing fuels because you're zapping it with electricity, which is cheap and abundant. Yeah. And you also need water, which happens to be all around aircraft carriers. <laughs> in general. And that removal of CO2 from the atmosphere is also part of geoengineering. Coincidentally, this idea was proposed by David Keith, who's talked about both removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and spraying things into the atmosphere to cool the planet, which gets into a really hairy question. Can we say what we're talking about without saying the actual term, or do we have to say moral hazard? I feel like you should lay it out and then let Sean explain. Is avoiding using the phrase a moral hazard? (laughs) (laughs) My my brain just exploded. Yeah, let's see. So, Sean, we really like to define things. So how about we let you define what is a moral hazard? Well, you know, really simply, a moral hazard could be whenever you try to reduce a risk causes you to incur that risk more. So like if I have a seatbelt, I might drive faster. Or if I buy flood insurance... I might not go to the Home Depot, pick up sandbags when the storm is too bad. And so these examples are kind of all around. You know, we have it in the Great Recession, too, that the bailouts lead to taking on greater risk by the banks. That's been an argument for many decades in economics. That's the whole point of the big short, right? It's like the ending. They're like, oh, spoiler. Yeah. Government guaranteed all the losses. (laughs) I mean, at at like the latest, this started with the saving and loan bailout. Mm. So I think. That that was the Reagan era? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they started doing it back then, and God only knows how much that's affected the financial markets since then. I don't know of any like really believable mechanisms for measuring that, especially on such a huge scale. But in geoengineering context, the idea is if you had some techno fix 
that you wouldn't want to build your renewable energy, build your nuclear plants and reduce your CO2. Okay, so you got to define for us and our listeners, Technofix. Oh, Technofix. I get a little closer. It's maybe a buzzword. It's probably an accusation, I would say, against geoengineering that, oh, this problem will just go away. We'll have the solution to all of our global warming problems, which incidentally, you know, I don't really think that there are too many geoengineering people saying that that is the case, but the moral hazard is kind of, oh, people will believe this and then we won't do the right thing, which is to reduce emissions. Didn't your your paper that we read where, I don't know if we can publish it or find some way to like make something available to people. We can talk about that later, but the Royal Society did some investigations on this and they found that actually, if you pose this question to people about geoengineering, even people who are skeptical of climate change, they would oftentimes be like, if it's serious enough to ask if I'm going to like send a mirror to outer space to reflect the sun or like sulfates, like this must be a huge problem, right? So it actually increased their willingness to mitigate. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a lot of willingness to contend with that possibility. Another counterintuitive thing, you know, sometimes it might be true. So if you're having a hard time convincing people climate change is real, maybe you should just let them know people are looking into space mirrors and spraying sulfur in the stratosphere. Anything that sounds like a Bond villain is a great attention grabber. I'm already like intrigued now. Should we just make everyone watch Snowpiercer? <laughs> God, I mean, we can even talk on the podcast about geoengineering and Snowpiercer doesn't come up. It's like literally, it's like I the first sentence out of movie. my mouth. I, I needed to watch that <laughs> if you want for to... this, but I didn't. However, I saw Geostorm. Oh, I don't, I don't even know that one. Is that another? Man, Geostorm, that's 2017. That's oh. 2017 with Gerard Butler and Jim Sturgis oh. in space. Oh. Jim Sturgis stays on Earth. A geostorm is impending because our weather modification from space is going haywire. It gets saved. You know, the moral of the story, it's a spoiler, but they keep the geoengineering. So that's the moral. <laughs> oh, so you just, this is like the try, fail, try again, fail better. The yes. Samuel Beckett that that's, Zizek likes to quote about communism. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that. But, I don't know that one. Uh, you don't need to know. <laughs> but that's one of the moral hazards. It's called the technical dependence hazard. That if we have these chemicals in the sky reflecting our sun away, then... We're not going to be able to take it down because if it fell out, if we stopped doing it, maybe after only a few months, the concentrations of reflectance would reduce and then there might be really fast global warming. So we'd have to keep doing it. Mm. So we just get hooked on it. And then you have this whole like like regulatory capture or like rent seeking kind of behavior in there too. You bring up two different moral hazards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in my paper, I talk about 16 and actually it's from a, another really excellent paper by Ben Hale. He picks out the 16. I looked at them and I said, None of these are enough to say we shouldn't do geoengineering. And we'll get into that. But the technical dependence. Uh, yeah, we're on technical dependence. And then we also talk about like once people are, are you doing said addiction, it. you said addiction and you said um, rent seeking, rent seeking. Okay, regulatory so addiction is, a th I think, a framing of climate change that we probably seen around that we're addicted to oil and we need to get off of it. Geoengineering is methadone. I saw geoengineering like could be methadone or it could be, you know, just getting more of your fix. But in fact, I don't think the methadone thing has really been used. I think I Sounds I kind like of asserted like that. Tortured but why analogy not? I asserted that. Why not? I only know about methadone because of the show House. Oh, okay. It's a good, good source. <laughs> Very informative. Yeah. But, you know, if methadone works, then that implies geoengineering works, doesn't it? No. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is like trying to overapply analogies like that. But yeah, I've seen that too. And you, you sort of like trying to take these apart a little bit. Yeah, paper. you saw the oil addiction. So just mm -hmm. wanted to draw attention to that. That's a, a lot of this moral hazard is really framing and it's rhetorical. What's going to persuade people? Are people persuaded enough that CO2 reduction is the right thing to do, that they wouldn't really open their minds to a geoengineering future? Do we have other framings about, you know, looking forward, having a diversified portfolio of solutions, or just worrying that climate change already is very serious. All of these alternative framings, 
cast doubt on, on mitigation that we might be wasting our time or wasting our resources to do basically what I say is slowing down global warming instead of reversing it like you guys are trying to do, which is great. Or, you know, just stopping it. That would be something. Yeah. One of the concerns that gets brought up with us too, with carbon removal and our interest in it is that if people can just remove the carbon that they emit and they can keep on their lifestyle the same pace, yeah. then we're just sort of like amplifying it rather than not. But I don't want to like go back to an old standard of living. Like everyone does. Like there may be some people who are really dedicated, who are willing to go back to like quasi primitivist agrarian living style. I am not. I want to keep doing this. I just want to make sure that we take care of the planet while we do it. And it's not only about you, but it's about what about all the people around the world who've never had that opportunity because I, their I'm more economies haven't me, developed though. as much. Oh, it's, it's all about me. No, that, that's way more important too in many ways. Yeah, and I guess since we're sitting here with an economist, we have to use the phrase externality. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you people misusing externality. Is that your favorite thing? It is. So many things that they say are, I think may not be, but that's kind of a broad conversation. I saw an argument on Facebook the other day where someone argued that externalities are only negative. And I was like, that's not, that's not true at all. There's a neutral term. There can be positive externalities. Anyways, though. So is geoengineering a positive or negative externality? I'm sure it depends on who you are. If you're like a deep green, one of those personality types, their ideological types that you name, it's probably just straight up negative, right? Yeah. I would even say, first of all, I hate the term geoengineering. I really don't like how it sort of pigeonholes a whole bunch of things into something that it's not. But it because, sounds so epic. Because, well, it's actually, yeah. <laughs> burning fossil fuels is a form of geoengineering. Absolutely. It, because that is us tinkering with the planet on a large scale and making changes. Yeah, Christoph is right. I think maybe we take a step back and talk about what some of the other geoengineerings are. I mean, there's two kinds. First of all, there's carbon dioxide removal geoengineering, CDR. Mm-hmm. But we're all in eight to the ninth, so it's carbon dioxide removal. <laughs> oh my goodness! This is the Sean's a big fan of the podcast. So that's a, <laughs> what a callback there! What is that? Can you explain real quick? Eight to the ninth, since we don't use acronyms, is the American Association Against All Acronyms and also all abbreviations. Beautiful, beautiful. It was eight to the eighth, but he added the also. I added that. also. Oh, okay. I like it. <laughs> Just... Okay, so back to your substantive point. <laughs> Carbon dioxide removal geoengineering could be something as simple as taking corn stalks from a field after it's harvested, put it in a, a factory that makes it into charcoal, and then bury it. Correct. You just did geoengineering. Could it be planting trees as well? It could be planting trees. It, That's it, in the Royal Society report. Aren't all forms of agriculture technically geoengineering? Sure. If you want to say climate geoengineering... Yeah, I mean, either way, fine, right? That's totally great. What that means is that we're already okay with some of these things. Right. Or, well, we're not okay with some of them too. Right. So the other kind, besides carbon dioxide removal, and there's many kinds of that. You know, another one that was tried is ocean iron fertilization, where you mm-hmm. go and you drop a big old, probably uh, flakes, not a big block of iron, but you drop iron flakes into the ocean and it increases plankton, which increases fish eating plankton, which increases carbon through fish waste sinking into the ocean. Mm-hmm. That one may not work, but that's a theoretical geoengineering too. You know, the, the problems I have with these things is that there's really no way to test them at scale without doing them at scale. Yes. <laughs> the risk will always exist. You can't really test away those risks. Actually, oh, maybe it was on the podcast. I heard somebody deny that's true. Actually, you could just like do a square mile of solar aerosol spraying and like measure the insulation underneath the square mile. Why not? It's not completely impossible to empirically do. It's just very difficult to assess the impact on the climate. Yeah, right. That's the bigger sure. problem with yeah, it. That's true. Well, but uh, oh yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to take us back to something incredibly pernicious, and I want to deconstruct it. The mitigation 
quote unquote, air quotes, camp will say, okay, so if you are going to geoengineer, that removes the incentive to do the things that we already have to do. I think that's wrong, but you probably think that's wrong too. But you were in the debate club and you like to debate. So try to convince us that that's right. Yeah. So I think really the most important reason that that is a wrong attitude is that we have already failed on climate change. It's basically too late and it's by the arguments of environmentalists themselves. So first of all, the CO2 level is already too high to be safe. And you can know that because of the website 350.org, which was founded by Jim Hansen. Jim Hansen. Thank you. Yeah. Jim Hansen is one of the most famous climate advocates going back decades, testifying to Congress that this was a problem. So Jim Hansen implicitly agrees that we're already too far gone. The CO2 is like greater than 400 parts per million. Of course, it's highly seasonal. But it seems like Jim Hansen also contradicts himself. I think so. I think it is a contradiction to say CO2 levels already too high. We need to do mitigation only because mitigation can only prevent emissions from going into the air. It cannot remove them. So it's impossible for mitigation to reverse the CO2 level. You need to build at a minimum some kind of additional carbon storage. It's not impossible. It would just take a very, very, very long time. I don't know. Well, the natural carbon cycle could potentially absorb that. It's just that that would take a long time, potentially thousands, tens of thousands of years. The second point is the lags in the climate system. So we have a level of CO2 right now that we think is too high, but also we don't know completely what level of temperature that that corresponds to after the system is fully adjusted. So one like small point to disagree on that is that it wouldn't automatically adjust like the CO2 level to pre-industrial levels. The CO2 is accumulating in the atmosphere. So basically when the climate system is done adjusting, it's going to be with a higher CO2 level and a higher temperature. But in a world where we're doing aggressive carbon dioxide removal geoengineering, we can both lower that equilibrium CO2 level and that equilibrium temperature. And the basic reason is there's no place in the world to store our 40 billion tons of CO2 other than the atmosphere. So regardless how long you wait, that CO2 isn't going anywhere unless some other carbon storage mechanism in the environment or from humans is constructed. So I actually do think that there's room to store the 40 billion tons we emit each year on the simple fact that we've pulled it out of the ground and there's space back in the ground where we might be able to store it. I also think as Nori is certainly looking at soils as an obvious first place to restore the carbon, there's ample room. And if there are effective ways to sink carbon in the ocean, we might be able to handle it there. I'm still hung up on it though, Sean, because I... We need more reasons. Yeah, we need... I have some. <laughs> yes. Take... <laughs> so first of all, we threw out the term mitigation. And just to define that, oh, it yeah. means to make less bad. And That's what, yeah, that's you know, what, I define don't... it for this context as preventing emissions or basically every climate policy that currently exists, which is carbon tax, cap and trade, renewable portfolio standard, energy efficiency. Those would all be examples of mitigation because they're just preventing emissions. And, and it could be made much simpler. We're not saying that's bad. We like mitigation. But what we're saying at Nori is if you put CO2 or a greenhouse gas up into the atmosphere, it needs to get pulled back. And if you don't put CO2 out into the atmosphere, well, good for you. You're not going to need to pay to put it back. And if you put less, well, then you pay less to pull it back. At the end of the day, it's about balancing the books. How does it make any sense? I want you to even try to convince me. Like, if you're telling me that I can now balance the books, I would be less likely to want to balance the books. Is that the moral hazard argument? Yeah, it seems kind of inherently less persuasive to say that carbon dioxide removal geoengineering trades off with mitigation and that's bad because those are like perfect substitutes because you are preventing one from going up. You're taking one out. Like either way, there's one less molecule of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But 
the moral hazard argument probably is more persuasive against the other kind of geoengineering, solar radiation management, or the acronym would be SRM, which includes spraying aerosols in the stratosphere to slightly whiten the sky, or doing mirrors at the Lagrange points to prevent the sun that way, or even some other ones that have been shown ineffective is like painting the streets white, painting roofs white, somehow otherwise whitening our society or natural environment. There's also like piloting ships around the ocean and creating a marine layer of clouds as well. Right. Just and actually spraying like steam or just, yeah, or just taking water and just spraying it up. Yeah. And, and pollution know. does that too. It accomplishes that. It right. creates clouds. Was that a disagreement? I had a hard time keeping up with exactly. I know. I don't oh, think. It, yeah. I don't think it Christoph was a disagreement. Yeah, because I only gave. I think two reasons. Yeah, so we're, we need to get to the all. CO two is already too high. The CO two is already too high. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then number two is it takes a while for the system to equilibrate to the temperature that corresponds to the CO two level. So right now both of these things are moving. But if the CO two level stopped increasing, like all emissions tomorrow went to zero. It would still take a thousand years for the climate to stop changing because it would be responding to the new level. And that's what Paul was talking about, where we would be. The answer is we don't know. And actually, I think that these arguments are the same ones environmentalists make when they emphasize the importance of mitigation. They say climate change is very uncertain. Climate change is very impactful. Climate change is very serious. And all of these things point to the need for a serious portfolio-based approach with a lot of options and kind of not just ideologically putting our eggs all in the basket of mitigation. And wasn't, I remember reading in your paper, I didn't know this, but this was brought up to uh, LBJ in the White House, geoengineering and like SRM. That's right. Was LBJ, like the only solution proposed? LBJ right? was the first president to know about anthropogenic global warming. And his science advisor said, hey, it looks like there's this warming effect because actually the effect was discovered years before. It's very simple to replicate in the lab, the CO2 heating effect. And they were just like, but in case this becomes a problem, we can just spray sulfur in that stratosphere because it works in volcanoes. Wow. And that was the 50s. But nobody like really talked about that. And for whatever reasons, climate change didn't really surface until decades later, as you know. And actually, one thing that I, I try to frame in my paper is that so many scientists are concerned with this moral hazard argument that they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to bring it to policymakers. And they certainly don't want the broader public to kind of get an idea of the possibility because that's the whole moral hazard problem that if people are even aware of this, then they won't care. They won't turn their lights off. They won't buy their Prius. They won't buy their Tesla. They want a spiritual change like the techno fixers. We kind of fall into that camp sometimes because we don't want to like rely on people having a spiritual change of heart about the environment which I think that's like probably not going to work very well it probably won't happen it's probably already too late like we need like effective ways to motivate people and it isn't just like what if we all like worship the Gaia together and then we get it all fixed yeah you know you can to just you know moderately criticize you can dance for the rain but it, it won't necessarily come and and the third reason that mitigation has failed is because we don't know how sensitive the climate is. So it's kind of an extension of the second one, but the second one is how long it takes. And the third one is if we double CO2, how much of a temperature increase does that lead to? Does that lead to two degrees Celsius or does that lead to 11 degrees Celsius? And if- Meaning it's, it's probably not linear. Not linear, right. But then also what's the shape? What's the shape of that function? And we could already be past a point where we're going to get a really dangerous amount of global warming. Like if the average temperature on an average day was greater than the temperature that causes mammals to have hyperthermia, it'd be basically uninhabitable for mammals on earth. Now that doesn't mean humans extinct. Obviously we're different than other mammals in many ways, but that'd be a real problem. And we don't know that. It actually goes to an article that I read this morning about the Arctic, which is experiencing temperatures 45 degrees Fahrenheit above average. 
Yeah, I have a hard time even believing that. It seems crazy high. They're yeah. more sensitive. That's reason number four is the positive feedbacks. What is that? Should we lay that out for people? Positive feedback is that global warming leads to more global warming. It's so like accelerating, right? Accelerating. And it's part of the climate sensitivity parameter, but kind of another reason. So Right. So you've got the Arctic, which is melting, and the Arctic is white, which has a very strong albedo. So it will reflect the sunlight back into the atmosphere so that the Earth doesn't absorb it. And then you've also got the permafrost, which stores massive amounts of carbon, which begins to melt. And you have the methane, which is a way more potent greenhouse gas going directly and just escaping. You know, there are videos of people in Siberian lakes lighting a match and literally after they poke a hole in the lake, those lakes are turning on fire. I've seen like Alaskan homes like fall in under like permafrost decaying Mm -hmm. and like melting, Mm -hmm. just falling into like giant sinkholes. But, you know, okay, so we're getting into the doom and gloom, and that's not the point of this podcast. It's reversing climate change. And I want to go back to this techno fix thing. I would certainly think that Nori is proposing a techno fix, but not one particular solution. We are proposing one price on carbon and letting anything that can remove carbon to compete on that one price. That's the techno fix. It's as simple as that. There's pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Everything that can do that in order to balance the carbon budget is a techno fix. And I guess that makes us techno optimists to actually believe, hey, this is possible and we don't want to live in that world. As an economist, do you approve of that sort of like method for addressing climate change? Does it trigger you in some sort of way? You know, previously I've written about how kind of questionable it is to decide a carbon price. I really don't like the idea of doing all these statistics and, you know, kind of making up numbers. And of course, everybody tries their best, but we don't really know the answer. It's arbitrary. It's pretty arbitrary. I have a gut reaction favoring cap and trade for that reason, that it seems a little bit more plausible that you could use a physical science model to decide like what's the maximum allowable CO2 level for the earth. And then you could like divide that to California based can, on the size of the economy. Can I give you my critique of yeah. cap and trade though? The problem is that cap and trade inevitably is only going to be enforced within a specific regional right. jurisdiction. Yeah. And so in a standard market on the demand and supply side, like the supply can come from anywhere. A project could be planting trees in Kenya and could be selling into the California cap and trade market, except for like some small voluntary participation on top of it, your demand side is really limited. So you're going to run into problems where your demand cannot grow as large as your supply can. So you're going to have price crashes. Yeah, that's uh, a couple of things on that. First of all, would you think that carbon tax escapes that? No, not necessarily because it's like really arbitrary. It's still within the boundary, like you're saying. Yeah. It's not kind of a a more universal-ish platform, kind of like Nori is imagined to be. But also, I'd just like to comment that for California's cap and trade, which was established by AB32 in, I think, 2005, you can only do 4% of your emissions liability as offsets, so as carbon removal projects. And they have a heavy preference for ones that are in California. So they don't really like your idea of going to Kenya and planting a tree because of what they call co-benefits, which is like we wanted to help Californians. So it's kind of like, if you can imagine, the Trump of California global warming policy. (laughs) <laughs> you mean like like nationalists since we're like within our borders? Our people and, like uh, first, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. no matter like how much better it is to reduce global warming in Kenya. Right. This seems like a good place to break into maybe the power utility that you work at or just in general, like what are the trends in, in energy? How are people preparing for this? What's California like? Do you interact at all with the uh, carbon markets here? Oh, a lot. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Do. Please lay it on. In us. my job, I, I do price forecasting and some renewable energy planning. And a big part of it is analyzing what's the policy detail in the cap and trade and how's that going to affect the price going forward. They have interesting mechanisms. Like for example, there's auctions for the permits of the cap and trade, and there's a price floor in the auction so that if the bids aren't high enough, 
then they charge the minimum price and it's the law for you to get these. So you have to buy them. And for example, this floor, it increases every year at 5% plus inflation. It's like around 7% and that's the price floor. But there's also now a price ceiling. So there's what? kind of a price ceiling. Yeah. So a floor and a ceiling. So like Why? a completely bound marketplace where like there's only a permissible region of trading. Why can't it just be bid up? Like it doesn't seem like a, an efficient way yeah, to like, allocate the ceiling. Yeah. Because that's what you want, right? You actually want the carbon price to get really high so that it's a basically high carbon tax and you reduce emissions a lot. But that would be politically inexpedient, especially for, you know, energy consumers slash voters. Oh, so that's more of a political handout to the forced buyers of these. I think so. Yeah. As well as maybe, you know, about the free allocation. No, what's that about? We do, but please tell us. Yeah, the uh, carbon permits, you get them for free if you're a special company that the government likes. And it depends, you know, they just basically you sell them yourself on the auction. So you get money. Mm -hmm. It's passed through to electricity rate consumers. So you get a lower electricity rate based on if the carbon price is high, you'll actually get a lower rate. Should we, should we, uh, do you, do you want to give your, these opinions are my own and they do not reflect my employer or any of that? Yeah, I should definitely say that I have a lot of opinions and my company does too, but they're not always the same ones. So these are my personal opinions. You have a lot, a lot of opinions. These are my are you, opinions. Are sure? <laughs> so so <I've, laughs> these are my opinions and not those of any organizations. I'd like your opinion on the California cap and trade market, because this is being used as a model for the rest of the world to look at for effective cap and trade. Really? I think there are certain Californians who are saying that and saying, hey, look at us. Look at all this great work we're doing. So, Sounds like a Californian for sure. <laughs> I think that there are other Californians saying that it's a failure because the carbon price is too low. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is that we also have renewable portfolio standard and a lot of what they call complementary policies. Actually, this is what I really dislike the most is the so-called complementary policies because typically, you know, economists, maybe we like elegance, but maybe I would say we like a simple solution. So cap and trade seems like pretty simple. You just choose a carbon amount and then you have some auctions. If you do complementary policies, you just have so much of a bigger job to do like all these small things. But the bad effect is that the complementary renewable portfolio standard, which is where they say 50% electricity has to be renewable, it reduces emissions, which is good, but that reduces demand for cap and trade permits. That reduces the price of cap and trade permits. Mm -hmm. And so some of your environment cannibalizing demand for it exactly yeah. so some of your activists turn around and say well clearly the market cap and trade is not an effective way to reduce global warming we need command and control from the top this is me shaking my head no is I, it i'd call that a moral hazard <laughs> oh yeah please elaborate <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's immoral. We could say that. I, I'd be comfortable with that. But is yeah, it? I mean, if, if you're coming way? at it from the perspective that like a centrally planned solution is probably not the ideal way to fix this, and I don't want to see that happen, then that's the hazard there. If that's an inevitable outcome of the scenario you described, then that's bad. Absolutely, I like that. It jives with another thought that I have that if what I said about global warming being really bad now is true, then mitigation is the moral hazard against geoengineering. We keep doing mitigation. We think that it's enough and we won't take the steps that we need in order to prevent the real hazard. I mean, that's something that really gets me going when this groupthink in environmentalism really lets the ends justify the means. I read an article yesterday talking about the Netherlands. It was shared on Facebook, so it got a lot of likes, even some loves. And it was saying that the Netherlands, by the year 2025, was going to ban the sale of all internal combustion engines. Now, the article also went on to say that only 5% of the Netherlands 
power generation came from renewable sources. So Ross, let's do some math. If 5% comes from renewable sources, where do you think the rest comes from? Um, I don't know, fairy dust and, and leprechauns and all that? Right. So 95% comes from fairy dust and leprechauns and fossil fuels. Oh, okay. But there you go. So you're going to have more electric vehicles onto the grid. <laughs> all right. More electric vehicles, which are putting more demand onto the grid. The country ostensibly is doing this and saying, we're going to use this to meet our Paris targets. But what ends up happening is that you just shift the carbon emissions from the pipe to the smokestack. I would say that's a more, is that a moral hazard, Mr. Economist, ethicist? You know, I want to argue that the moral hazard is only what I say it is and nothing else. So <laughs> if you are reducing the risk and that's increasing your risk. So I think what you're describing is a real serious concern, but it's a different concern. It's just like emissions relocating across sectors. Uh -huh. It's very important. And it's but, important but, but for California. People are moralizing but, it. but people believe oh, that yeah. they, oh, that they people aren't moralizing doing that. It. Yes, if you're just shifting from one source to another, then then yes. And if everyone understood that that was happening, but I think people genuinely believe when they're buying an electric car that they're doing something good for the environment. That just sounds more like delusion than moral hazards. Strictly. Well, if you're in California, then your electric car is natural gas powered, which is maybe cleaner than your oil powered car. So it depends on where you are. Sure. I think that actually most people who seriously think in this area are very aware of that kind of fuel switching issue, but it varies by country and location based on what is in your grid. So it's really important not to lose sight of that. Yeah. People make this criticism of Tesla or various other manufacturers where it's like, you're yeah, charging it's not, with a, it's a natural gas plant. It's not Tesla's fired. fault. Yeah. They're not, not a power generator. No, for sure. Yeah. But people like to think like, oh, I have this great moral bounty for doing this thing. And it's like, well, on net, maybe or maybe not. kind of depends. Yeah. So there is this continuing overlap between is ruining the environment through climate change immoral? Is geoengineering immoral and the moral hazard? You know, from my exposure to the moral hazard argument in economics, the morality of it kind of is secondary to just having this phrase that means if you reduce the risk, you increase the risk. So that's really the realm that I try to keep the consideration of the moral hazard because there's other problems like geoengineering could have bad side effects by itself. I mean, you're going to block the sun. You're going to reduce power down the water cycle. You're going to power down slightly agriculture, like maybe 2%. Those are real concerns, but those aren't the moral hazard. They aren't saying you're going to make global warming worse by making it better. That's the moral hazard. And it's the same thing as saying you're going to make financial crises worse by bailing out the banks. You're going to be more likely to have a fire if you buy fire insurance. This is like kind of its own internal reasoning, even though ruining the environment could be immoral, geoengineering could be immoral. That's why I ironically titled my paper Immoral Geoengineering, because it's actually not about immoral geoengineering. It's about the moral hazard. And so would you say your position in general is just that you want geoengineering considered or not necessarily ruled out by everyone ex ante? Yeah, well, I think really the best position to inhabit on this issue is that geoengineering needs to be part of a portfolio of approaches. Mitigation probably can't take care of climate change itself. Like I said, shutting off all emissions tomorrow would not work. Not only would it be a bad idea, but it's pretty clear that adaptation is something that we should do in some capacity. Probably the moral hazard is floating out there being used against adaptation too. But the third part of what I call this climate policy triad is geoengineering in whatever forms, whether it's carbon dioxide removal or solar radiation management. This is such a big issue by the own admission of environmentalists and policymakers who are with them that it would be silly really to say this one thing that is copacetic to our desire to power down industry is the only thing that we should do. That's really my opinion. It comes from a presupposition that we need to power down our civilization, that the civilization, how far we've come is part of the problem. Yeah. Adaptation is also kind of a dirty word. But when I first got into this, 
I didn't really know anything about climate science at all. And I felt pretty hopeless because we were trusting the government to do this or activists. And, and I just didn't have a lot of faith in the process. So my default position for a long time was, well, if we can't really do anything about this, like we at least need like a free and dynamic economy so that we're able to be wealthy enough to be able to live on after like a climate changed world. But now that I've said that on the podcast, am I going to be getting in trouble for, for that? I know you not, want Snowpiercer to happen. Oh, I definitely <laughs> do. I know it's not, not popular, but that's not unreasonable. We should be able to talk about that. But I can see how it like takes the wind out of the sails if you care about mitigation a lot. Like if you're just like, oh, we just have to be like free and have a good free market economy so we can survive. Like that's probably the least appealing thing you can say to someone like that. True. I think that we can still have our cake and eat it too. We're yeah. we're very much kumbaya at Nori. First of all, we're not condoning SRM. Actually, the first time where we brought on geoengineering Jane and Andrew Maynard. She, she hates that name. I know, so we're going to make it stick. I got, a, I got a note from someone who worked at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and it was along the lines of, hey, I think Nori's cool, but you guys aren't like endorsing SRM, are you? No, we're not. We're only doing carbon removal. That is how... It's fun to talk about, though. Like, yeah, I, we, this conversation is super interesting. We have to talk about it. Like, we can't say that there's one right solution. What it comes down to is managing the greenhouse effect. Should we talk about how SRM might be terrible for Nori, or should we talk about how to convert Ooh. SRM credits into carbon credits? <laughs> I, I I would I would like to talk about the former. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's talk about our existential risk. But I would like to say I like SRM because it scares me very much. And it, I believe, will motivate at a certain time, maybe 2019, for everyone to want to pay for a lot of carbon removal because we don't want to do Can SRM. I say SRM doesn't actually scare me as much as sulfates in the atmosphere does? Because one of those is much easier to do than the other one. Like if SRM becomes a real plan, like there's a lot of time and energy and money that's going to go into producing that, that where this discussion and conversation can happen. But like anyone right now could send a plane up into the air and start dumping sulfates up there. Absolutely. I think that it seems really intuitive that space-based SRM, basically like installing shades in orbit or at the Lagrange point, which floats between the Earth and the sun, that seems like the safest because you wouldn't have these chemicals, you wouldn't have them falling out, you wouldn't have to continuously pump this stuff up there, and you might have less of a termination problem because the particles would fall, but how are those mirrors going to get out of place? I do worry about some kind of cosmic disaster, but I'm not sure that that's really realistic. I haven't consulted any astronomers. Like it rotates and starts like reflecting onto us. And <laughs> like like what up. if a comet flies through like our mirror cloud? That would be a disaster. Wasn't it like in SimCity too, you had like the microwave power or whatever. I remember you get like zapped and it'll destroy your city. Yes, but that's mitigation. There's a real technology. <laughs> <laughs> There's a real technology called space-based solar power that is to collect it in orbit, yeah. beam it, and that's mitigation. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the SRM risk to Nori. I'm very curious what you think about that. Well, not that many people want SRM, so it's not a near-term risk. Really, I think people like David Keith, who I think David Keith is really the most responsible geoengineering advocate out there. He's always talking about this moral hazard stuff almost before he says what his real idea is. So that's probably the ideal geoengineer. And I am going to bestow that title on him. I think it's probably non-controversial. <laughs> uh, we'll let him know. We'll send it to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't want it. So he's responsible. The only time that people say we should even do it, obviously we should research solar radiation management no matter what, because climate change is uncertain and potentially an existential risk. But should we really do it? Nobody's saying that we should unless there's pretty much an immediate emergency. Like if we see Arctic methane is exploding out and we're going to have like something five degrees Celsius in five years warming, something like that. Is that a threat to Nori? I don't know. What's Nori going to do if there's a climate change uh, apocalypse scenario? 
I guess it's sort of evaluating like at what point do things get so bad that the attempt to scale up carbon removal becomes not even worth it anymore. You really want to decide on what is that time that we're going to deploy it. You want to decide beforehand, I think. Otherwise, you're going to slide into it. You're going to have the regulatory capture of the geoengineers like, oh, I've been working on this for 20 years. Like, come on, let me do it. That's worrisome. Yeah, I can see that risk. Yeah, I want to do it. <laughs> you want to be the guy with the button? Uh, what? The space base, by the way, is probably the safest, but the most expensive. You need like 10 trillion mirrors or something. It would take a decade even launching like a million a day, something. Jeez. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, I think the way to get started, just get out there with your paint roller and start painting Los Angeles white. I mean, maybe Los Angeles oh, is man. a bad city to Those do that. Those streets would get so dirty and gross. I know. Though. That's the thing. It's really, it's why I said it sort of retracted my The roofs comment. I could be it's, okay it's with. rooftops there, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, but the, the, the streets. I've never heard the streets until today. That's a thing. There's a good back of the envelope calculation in the Royal Society 2006 report. They assumed like all the cities become white and it doesn't work. It's not enough. Oh, okay. That's unfortunate. It'd be nice if we had well, these quick it, fixes. It's, that it's not easy. enough on its own, right? But it, Yeah, good point. Very good point. Taken as like one of many in a suite of responses. Isn't that kind of a little bit of a handout to the sunglasses companies though? I feel like if every city was bright white, I would just <laughs> Ray-Ban stock by now. We need complimentary policies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> would you just mean like we need to stack them on top of each other? <laughs> I don't, I don't I use this term. Like, I, I think I sarcastically here. recommended that we do some kind of extra tax on the sunglass companies due to their unjust profits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something you'd, you'd suggest. So, Sean, you work at a utility. You think about energy production and you mentioned natural gas and things are happening in California with natural gas and fracking, which is also sometimes controversial. I'd be interested in your thoughts and opinions around the topic. I saw a meme on Facebook that was summarizing a statistical regression result from some economists. And it said that a 1% increase in renewable energy leads to a greater than 1% increase in natural gas burning. And I thought that that yep. was a fake meme, but I looked at the paper and they had a good method and they, they showed that doing renewable energy increases doing natural gas because you need a flexible mm -hmm. grid support system. So maybe you're turning off coal that is happening nationally. So I believe that that was captured in their data. Isn't that more or less what Jevons paradox? Isn't that basically the same thing? The Jevons paradox is a little bit different. The Jevons paradox says, as you get more efficient, you will consume more energy. Yeah. And this one is more like saying natural gas and renewables are complements. Oh, right. Yeah. So if you're going to have a certain amount of power provided by solar, then which isn't stable or you, you can't use that at all hours of the day because that energy exists. So now there is a demand for that supply. And to support that demand, now you have to increase the amount of supply of non-renewable energy. Exactly. But the Jevons paradox, like an example would be if solar panels tomorrow became twice as productive per square foot, we wouldn't use half as many because like it's so much easier and cheaper. We would use twice as much. Right. Right. Because it's better. That's yeah. Jevons. Because we, we always want more energy. Exactly. So, yeah, so fracking, it has its own environmental problems, doesn't it? But well, one of those is to uh, get natural gas out of the ground. Yeah. So in a weird way, the environmental movement really likes to pick and choose. And it doesn't realize that sometimes what we're proposing is part of causing the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, it's really sad that so many environmentally interested people, they don't like economics and sometimes they have like an outward contempt for economists. And I know that from my experience, like being in university and being in an economics department and a environmental studies department. But I really think that we should be natural allies. I mean, both of us want to make the best use of resources that we can, although in our own way, right? Yeah, I've seen that uh, David Suzuki video gets passed around every once in a while. The economics is a form of brain damage. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. That sounds too triggering. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't care for that one, but I always see it once in a while. But they don't like it because they think it's, you know, the, the old joke, right? The economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing. You've heard that. Yeah. It's just like, we're just, you're just dumb people. You just care about money. You don't care about like the environment. And well, clearly just opportunity cost is everywhere, right? That's like one of the key insights of economics. And I feel like sometimes people don't like to be reminded of that or some of the best economists are environmental economists. Yeah. Economics isn't all about money. I think that nowadays, many people know that it's about human action and human uh, decisions, choices, and the way basically, you know, specialization and trade. It's Adam Smith. I think it's more that than it's these fancy statistical equations. And regarding environmental interest, deep greens, what was Christoph saying? What were you saying? I, I had, I mean, we were fracking. Yeah, we were talking about fracking <clears throat> and some of the opportunities it poses and also the challenges and how it kind of fits into the whole decarbonization attitude or approach that we have. And I was curious just how you see things playing out. You more or less answered my question. So that cool. was nice, Sean. This has been a great one. So I'm going to hit you with one final thought. Or you know, Sometimes we get interesting people on the podcast. We want to make them king or queen of the world and just kind of, you're a dictator. The world has to do what you propose. And you are tasked with solving climate change. There'd be no one for him to debate with, though. What would be the point? I know. Yeah, that's fine. It's to throw him in jail. <laughs> How would you do it? I'm trying to be really centrist these days, and I think I'm succeeding. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to establish a national carbon tax. But if I'm the dictator of the world, it's going to be a global carbon tax. And I'm going to... I have a list, like a short list of maybe five to 10 economists who I would hire, like including Bill Nordhaus, Matt Kahn, Olivier Duchesne, couple other people, Adam Rose, lots of really smart people thinking about this issue. And I would get all those guys together and I would be like, look, I don't care how you do it. Just give me a carbon price. I know that it's a number you made up, but whatever, hopefully it's high. That's one. And number two, I convene some more experts, including David Keith, and I would get them to give me a geoengineering budget. And I would have them be like this much CDR, carbon dioxide removal, this much solar radiation management. Okay. More money to carbon dioxide removal. I'm sympathetic to that. Oh, so we're third? We're third? <laughs> <laughs> what about the podcast what, is over. <laughs> yeah. What about the blockchain engineers? They must be important too, right? <laughs> yeah. Blockchain. Yeah. We didn't even get into that. We didn't get into that. You're into that I mean, I'm a speculator of currency, but I assume that you guys are like going to connect IoT devices to the blockchain, sending their data to be recorded there. And that's, and that's the eventual goal. A lot of the methodologies that we want to think about doing with that just aren't ready for that. But that's the goal because there's a problem with transparency and provability of data. Once it's on the blockchain, that's somewhat of a trivial task to do. But it's, the problem is how do we get that real world data into the blockchain? And how do you prevent people from like cooking their sensors? What if I, right, I exactly. could just get a canister of some kind of air minus CO2 and blow that over my sensors? Right. Those are the challenges with it. Yeah. yeah. And I think there are ways around that because we can look at historical data and if you suddenly have some weird spike because you have your little CO2 depleted air spray Absolutely. can, we'll know you're cheating and then you can't play in our marketplace. We actually have an uh, economist that we've been working with who is doing the modeling for this and trying to make sure we get the game theory right. So it's like, how often do you need to check mm. to discourage cheating and collusion and stuff like that? But it's an open problem and it's definitely the biggest one that we face, I would say. But it's definitely not unsolvable. I mean, it's been right. solved in countless markets, different Auditing is, has existed for a long time. Exactly. And hey, regarding Christoph's uh, issue about environmentalists and natural gas, I wanted to just draw a brief attention to Paul Ehrlich. You guys know Paul Ehrlich, The Population Bomb, mm -hmm. very popular book among environmentalists. And kind of the modern version is Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel or Collapse. 
about how, you know, the Mayans, they just like ran out of food and we're clearly going to do that too because of global warming. I mean, this is the canned version that I receive from popular conversations. I want to say, first of all, that Julian Simon beat Paul Ehrlich in a very famous bet saying oh. that prices of metals would go down, not up because Paul Ehrlich was a scarcity fetishist. He thought we're running out of everything, destroying the environment. And this is a mentality that's been proven wrong repeatedly. And the way forward is to continue civilization. It's definitely not to relax civilization and coming up with more advanced techniques, including geoengineering in all of its forms that work is part of that. I'm so glad you told that story. I was wondering how many episodes it would take before someone told the story of that bet because it's so beautiful. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to top that. Why don't we cap this episode there? That was a beautiful closing statement. Sean, thanks so much for being here with us. This was super fun. Thanks, you guys. Good luck. This is great. I'm really excited about Nori. Thanks, Sean.